Uh, well, Christmas time is, uh, is always a time that reminds me about, uh, about when I got engaged to my now wife. Uh, so this is many years ago when, uh, when I had a great uh, romantic plan uh, to take her up on, on a hill overlooking you know, Langley and Surrey. It was going to be this, this beautiful experience, this very romantic thing. <laughs> I failed terribly, and you can ask me about it later and laugh at me. But uh, one thing that I did succeed at, uh, partially, is, is I wrote my wife a song. And so, don't laugh at that part. That's not the joke. <laughs> I wrote my wife a song, uh, and I will spare you from any part of it. Uh, but uh, it was the, the purpose of it, obviously, was to, to share my, my love, my affection, my, my desire to be Melissa's husband. And so I wrote this song and I, and I played it for her. Now, uh, like any, any song, uh, it, it had uh, kind of a structure to it, right? Verse, intro, chorus. Uh, and, and every good song has that. But, but more than just a structure, usually a, a good song will have, will have stuff in it that, that points to something more than what it's saying. It will, it will have allusions to events or places or times or things that make you go, oh, that's what they're talking about. If you're from a different culture, from a different time, and you look at some of the, the songs that we, uh, we listen to today, you might go, what are, they, what are they talking about? And as we enter into Matthew chapter 2, that's our text for this morning, welcome you to turn there in your Bibles, uh, we might be like that a little bit, where we enter into a, a passage that kind of seems a little bit like a song with these allusions that maybe don't make a whole lot of sense to us. The, the, the passage that we're going to look at has this structure of, of verse and chorus, with the verse being uh, this repeated statement uh, where uh, God uh, appears in a dream, or an angel of the Lord appears in the dream. And then there's a, a ver- or chorus sorry, that says, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, or by the prophet. There's this verse and chorus that kind of goes through the whole thing. But between that, in that structure, there's all these illusions that point to something that a first century uh, audience would have understood and, and would have known what they were talking about. It, it pointed to, with just a, a few words on Matthew's pen, this, this great understanding of who Jesus was, what he was coming to do, what he was fulfilling with his life. Matthew reveals in this passage great realities about God himself. And about how Jesus is fulfilling the plans that God set in place before the foundations of the world. So there's two things that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, The the verse being, uh, God is at work warning, guiding, and protecting. And the chorus being, God's plan is being used, uh, sorry, God's plan is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Uh, We're going to see then what that Uh, those words fill in what they point us to this morning. So first, uh, let's read the passage together. And one thing that we should notice in the Christmas story is uh, this passage probably takes place not right after the shepherds leave, after the angels show up and tell them to go and find baby Jesus. The the text tells us that uh, it, it might be up to when Jesus is around two years of age. So Matthew chapter two, verse 12, read it with me. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they, this talking about the Magi, departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I've called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. 
And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, uh, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So, the first thing that we are going to look at is God is at work warning, guiding, and protecting. And where do we see this? Well, specifically, we see this in the Magi and in Joseph. In verse 12, the Magi are warned in a dream. Don't go back. Don't tell Herod about who this Messiah is. And so they go home a different way. In verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He's warned to rise and flee. He's told to go down and directed, guided to go to Egypt, protecting Jesus from the slaughter of the newborn children in Bethlehem. In verse 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph again, and he is guided to return back to Israel. And we are shown that Jesus is protected from, uh, for, during his short exile from Herod. And then in verse 22, the last time, and being warned in a dream, Joseph is warned not to return to where he was originally going to settle in Bethlehem, but instead told to go to the region of Nazareth. He's protected from the evil Archelaus and directed where he should go instead. See, God in his perfect providence, just in this passage alone, we can see the time and time again that he is not taking any chances. And it's not just this this one passage that we see this. We see this throughout the Bible, throughout salvation history, in the past and in the present. We're going to get to this in the, in the second point, but there's no way that God is going to let Herod or Archelaus kill Jesus and finish off his plan. He, he's not going to allow Mary and Joseph just to kind of go willy-nilly wherever they want. There, there is something that he is doing, even if at the time Mary and Joseph didn't understand it or see it. This is what we're going to see today. In our passage, we see this number of things that could go wrong, especially around uh, Bethlehem, being only nine and a half kilometers away from Jerusalem. In our, in our passage, it tells us that Herod, when he realized that he was tricked by the wise men, he sent soldiers to go and kill everyone. If God had not warned Joseph in a dream, and if Joseph had not gone right away, uh, this would have gone south really fast. And yet God doesn't let evil motives or fear or evil, the, the sin of this world, have victory. His hand is at work warning and guiding and protecting his people so that his plan will be fulfilled. When I was a kid, um, I, I was the youngest grandson on, on my dad's side for a while. Uh, and so I got the seat at the table uh, that was right at the, the edge. You know the corner seat, the really special one that nobody wants to sit in? I got that one. And uh, the highlight was that the seat that I got every year wasn't just like a nice comfy seat. It was the stool that doubled as like a step stool. So super comfortable. But I sat next to grandpa and for years, I just wondered why were there always birds in the house? There's always birds in the house and I would try to find them and I could never find them. And then food was missing on my plate or there was extra stuff on my plate and I just couldn't figure out what was happening. And it wasn't until I was, you know, 14, 15, 
that I realized that the grandpa is actually the one making the bird noises. That, that the grandpa is the one who's putting food and taking food off my plate. <laughs> see, there comes a point where we should be able to see as we look at scripture, as we look at God's hand at work in the Bible, that we see clearly his providence, his, his protection and his plan, his purposes all coming together. That there's no mistake, there's no happenstance. Everything is happening for a reason, for the purpose of salvation, to make us a part of his family. The amazing thing is that we can see this with our own eyes when we look clearly at scripture. God has been doing this for generations and he will not let sin, Satan, or death have the final word. He shows that he is in complete control. A quick look at the Bible uh, can show that scripture is uh, much just simply this, this kind of theme over and over again of God warning, providing, directing, protecting his people. From the beginning, we see that God is doing it with Adam and Eve in the garden. That he warns Adam, don't take the fruit. If you take the fruit, you will surely die. He's directed how he should live. This is what you're put in the garden to do. This is how you are supposed to honor and worship and live for me. And even after they reject God and they sin, they're protected so that God's purposes and plans can continue. Cain and Abel is the same thing. Cain, the, the, the older brother, well, he is, is jealous of Abel who's accepted by God. And God comes to him and, and warns him, if you allow the sin in your heart to take over, this is where it's going to lead. Don't let it win. Instead, he's, he's guided. He's told what he should do instead, how he should live. And even after Cain rejects God's advice, God protects him from the death that he deserved for killing his brother Abel. And the story continues through Genesis all the way down to Noah, where God meets with Noah and tells him, I am going to wipe out the sin of this world. He guides him to build an ark and tells him how he should do it, how he should build it, what he should do, how he should gather the, the, the people and, or his family and, and all the animals. And he's protected through the flood. And it goes on and on all the way down to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Exodus that we'll look at later. See, the, the, the point is that through famine and slavery, through barrenness, all these Old Testament stories we continue to see the providential work, that, that the hand of God working in every situation to bring about the end that he wants. We look through Moses and the Exodus to Judges and Ruth all the way through the prophets. This is what the Bible is trying to do for us. From eternity past to eternity future, look at what God has done. Look at his character and his work. Look how he is able to fulfill all the things that he wants to. All of his plans and his purposes. Look at God and see his consistent, unchanging nature and purposes. This is the one we can look to. This is the only person that we can trust with our life. Because his goal is the work of warning and guiding and protecting to bring about his work of salvation even in our lives today. This is what the early church would have been seeing through Matthew's gospel. And this is what we're supposed to see today, that because God has done this in the past, because God has been like this, he will continue to be like this. He tells us as New Testament Christians, as people who can know him now, that he has been the, the, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the one that starts it and he will be the one who completes it that we can expect that God is working for the good of those who love him, Romans 8, 28. 
See, all these stories, all of this is pointing to the great reality of God's character. It's the same reason that a, a car commercial tries and tell you that for 29 years straight, they've been the number one truck. And they try to make you forget about all the recalls. <laughs> look at who God is and look at what he's done. When we do that, and we see his work of warning and guiding and protecting his people, in the past, we can trust him to do the same with us today. Because his plan of salvation is being fulfilled in us too. Now, I know one of the pushbacks that, that I've had, that maybe you've had, is, okay, but if only God, if you would just show up in a dream like you did to Joseph, like then I would be able to fully trust, fully obey, fully do everything you've asked me. But there's a better way. Hebrews 1 tells us that, that God in the past spoke through his prophets and, and has spoken through angels, but now he speaks to us through his, his son, God himself shows us the plan and purpose for our lives. This is what John 6, 39 to 40 tells us. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That's, that's us. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, if you're a follower of Jesus you don't need to wait for dreams. You, you don't need to wait for that miraculous sign because we can search the scriptures and see what God is doing and what God has done. See, waiting for an, an angelic, uh, miraculous sign is like going to the newspaper and, and looking at the horoscopes versus the letter to the editor, or from the editor, sorry. Right? It, it, you're, you're looking at this, this small little, little thing that only gives you some advice in one little area when, when this gives you so much more information. This tells you about your life. We don't need to know to go down into Egypt or to marry that person or to take that job because God has shown us that he has opened the door of salvation for us. And he has shown us that when we trust in Jesus, his son, his blood will cover us and save us. That is far greater than any potential job opportunity that you might pass up. Far greater than any relationship that you, you might think that it could have been or should have been. This is of eternal consequence for our souls and God answers that question for us and points to the way that we should live. See, in the pages of the Bible, we see how we can be saved, but also how we should live because we have been saved. Look at 1 Peter or Ephesians. Go in and read it. They urge us as believers of Jesus how we should be living in light of the salvation we've received. It also reveals that we've been given the Holy Spirit, God's presence with us to help us and to guide us and to, to comfort us, to convict us. And lastly, as followers of Jesus here, we don't do this alone. We don't do this in isolation. And we don't even just do this on a, on a Sunday morning. David already mentioned it, but we would welcome you to be in a community group where we learn how to actually understand the, the Bible's implications for all of our lives. How the things that we do and the, the, the way that we live is actually transformed by the truths that we find in Scripture. God gives us so much that we can look at and, and how we can live and respond to the salvation we've received. Don't do life by yourself. Join us, please. And now maybe you look at your life and maybe you think, well, God actually doesn't care about me. I haven't actually seen God's work of, of warning and guiding and protecting in my life. 
And I'm, I'm not saying that uh, everything is going to be perfect and easy as a, a follower of, of Jesus. But I would say, uh, I would welcome you to come and, and talk with, with us, uh, somebody on staff, or with somebody who brought you, somebody around you. We would love to hear your story and understand maybe what God has been doing. And that the fact that you're here today is proof that God is, is guiding you to hear the, the message of the gospel. Now, Here's the thing, everything that's going down in, in, in this passage, everything that God is doing to warn and guide and protect is so that God's plan of salvation would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So let's look specifically at the second point. What is Jesus doing? God's plan is being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, there's three different prophecies in this passage, and we cannot look at all three of them unless you want to be here for an extended period of time, and nobody signed up for that. We can only have time to look at one. We're going to look at the, uh, the passage from uh, verse 18. It's, uh, it's quoting Jeremiah 31, verses 15. And this is what it says. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So who's Rachel? Why is she weeping? Well, to the early church, to the, the audience that was originally reading this, they would have known that Rachel was the wife of Israel. She is weeping in this passage context for the children who were killed in Bethlehem. But the church that was reading this, the early believers, or even just a Jewish audience would have seen this and remembered that the passage in Jeremiah is talking about the exile, when the nation of Israel was defeated and taken out of the land. Rachel was weeping for her children who were no longer in the land. But the people in Jeremiah who actually got this passage, they would have looked back even further and they would have seen that this is talking about the Exodus story. This is talking about when the people of Israel came down into Egypt. When they were in Egypt for a long time, uh, they, they grew up to be powerful and the Pharaoh who was there didn't want them to, uh, to leave, take off, didn't want them to plunder their wealth in case war happened and so he started killing off baby boys. Rachel is weeping for the boys who were killed. Now, the story that Matthew is trying to connect is back to the Exodus. That's what he's explicitly trying to get us to look at. And, and it's not just looking back at that, but he's trying to make the connection of what Jesus is actually fulfilling. And so later on in Jeremiah chapter 31, where this passage uh, is found, there's, there's uh, an expectation or a promise that God tells the people. And this is what it says. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So what, what Matthew is trying to point out is, that, that first exodus, it didn't, it didn't fulfill the plans. See, see, God was actually pointing to a better exodus that was to come. And he's trying to point to Jesus being the one that brings it. 
I think it's important, though, to give you a brief overview of salvation history, the Exodus story. We're not going to have time to, to pull on every single thread. I would welcome you to go and, and grab your Bibles this week and sit down, look through Genesis and Exodus and see the story and look at the connections that it makes to Jesus and that the, the, the New Testament points back to fulfilling it. But if we don't understand the Exodus, we don't understand what God is trying to do through Jesus. What we're about to do is we're about to take a bite out of a cheese string. Um, I don't know if you know what a cheese string is, but it's one of those ones where you're, you're supposed to just like peel layer by layer. You know exactly the one. Uh, when you watch a kid take a bite out of it, it's the most unsatisfying thing. We have to take a big bite this morning and try to make the big connection. So here we go. We're going to start, not at the beginning, but we're going to start with a man named Joseph. There's going to be a nice little graphic on, uh, on the screen. Hopefully it makes sense as we work through this. There's a man named Joseph. Uh, he was uh, one of the 12 brothers uh, who was hated. Uh, they were jealous of his father's love for him. They sold him into slavery down into Egypt. So he's taken into slavery down into Egypt where uh, through God's providential hand rises up to become Pharaoh's second in command. When he's second in command, he is able to save not only Egypt, but the, the ancient Near East from a famine that God had sent to bring his people, the Israelites, down into Egypt. So the whole family of Israel comes down into Egypt, uh, led by Joseph. When they're in Egypt for around 400 years, uh, they become slaves to Pharaoh, slaves to the Egyptians. Uh, the Egyptians are scared, like I said before, that they are going to rise up. They are going to become too powerful. They're going to plunder, and they're going to take the wealth, and they're going to leave. And so to stop that, they force them into slavery, and then they start getting the midwives to kill babies. And then when that doesn't work, they ask the people to go and kill all the babies born to the Israelites. Well, one of the baby boys who should have been killed is a boy named Moses. Moses is saved by his parents who put him in a basket, kind of like a little ark, float him in the water. He's pulled out of the water. He grows up in the house of Pharaoh. He escapes into the wilderness for a while uh, where God meets him and tells him, I'm going to bring my people out of slavery. I'm going to bring my people into the promised land like I, I, I promised uh, your, your great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. There's probably more greats in there. Moses goes back and through a series of miracles, uh, think the 10 plagues, brings the people out. The Passover is instituted where they take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost to, to, to signal that they are trusting in God. They're brought out of Egypt and they go into the wilderness. In the wilderness, they go through the, the Red Sea. They, uh, they are fed and they are given water. Their clothing doesn't wear out. Everything is provided for them until the point where they come into the promised land. And when they come into the promised land, you would think that everything would go well, right? They got what they were waiting for. And yet through the wandering in the desert, and even as they come into the promised land, the people grumble and complain. They whine. They do not follow God the way they should. When they're in the promised land, God raises up prophets and judges and kings to try and lead his people, but nothing works for long. There's glimpses of hope. There's, there's times where the people turn back, but after a generation, maybe, maybe more, maybe less, the people turn back to sin and to worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. They become slaves again to the people around them. It doesn't go well. And at the time that Matthew is writing this passage, the people were desperate for another exodus. They too were living under the, the, the rule of Rome. 
They were waiting for the salvation from the forces that were oppressing them. And gospel of Matthew is trying to convince the people that Jesus is the one who's going to do it. He's the long-awaited Messiah who's going to bring the exodus. But the Messiah wasn't coming just to get rid of the Romans. In fact, their, their political problems wasn't the issue that God wanted to solve. The people were oppressed by their own sin. Their hearts were made of stone. How were they to be saved from themselves? What kind of an exodus was needed for that. And this is where the prophecy sits, with this hopeful anticipation of God answering the question, of providing an answer to, 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 to give the solution that they were all looking for and longing for. How would God tie up all the loose ends? How would he warn, guide, and protect his plans, his promises, and his people? What we're supposed to see in this story of the Exodus is not failure, but in that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot fulfill the covenant. We cannot live the obedient life that we need to. We are sinful and rebellious people and cannot serve God fully. We need actually God to do the work that we are called to do. And this is where we see Jesus fulfill all the requirements that we fail. See, the first exodus, like I said, was not a failure. God didn't have the plan B that was Jesus. He was preparing us to see that we can't do it ourselves. We need God to be faithful to us and for us to fulfill both sides of the covenant. God is trying to connect what he's doing in Jesus with what he's already done in Israel. It's like the, uh, the, the scene from a movie where the, the camera pans over a desk and you, you, know, you see a, a stuffed animal or a, a memento from earlier in the movie and you realize that that belonged to, to what seemed like the victim but now you realize that he's grown up to be the protagonist. He's the hero of the story. This is, this is Jesus. These, these mirrors, these things that we look back on are supposed to point us to that Jesus is the one that the story hinges on. So now, let's look at the state, shape of, of Jesus' life and the story that he tells. Uh, you can see it in the graph there. Follow with me. Jesus also has a father named Joseph who also has dreams, who comes down into the land of Egypt. He has a great-grandfather named Jacob. Think Jacob who is renamed Israel. He uh, is going down into Egypt and comes back out into the promised land. And when we look forward to the coming chapters, we see that Jesus lives an obedient life. He's brought through the waters of baptism. Think the Red Sea. He goes into the wilderness for a time of testing of 40 days. And he comes through unscathed, unlike the people of Israel. He then comes up onto the mountain and he gives people the law in chapter 5. But this law is not one about just mere external, but it is about life and heart transformation, realizing that we can't do it on our own. Jesus then calls his people, his disciples to himself, and shows what his kingdom is going to be like, what worship should be like. He provides food and wine and healing to the people who were gathered to himself, at all times remaining faithful to God. In fact, he's faithful and obedient all the way to the cross to die as the Passover lamb that covers the sins of those who by faith believe in him. And he makes a new covenant with us by his blood that he pays for by his death. He is obedient where we aren't. He satisfies the righteous requirements of God's law where we can't. He submits himself to God's leading when we would rather fight. He delivers us from sin and death when we choose slavery to it. 
He opens the door to salvation that we are unworthy to walk through without the precious blood of Jesus covering over us. Behold, Jeremiah says, pay attention. He tells his readers that the day has come. Jesus is here. He's the one who's made a new covenant with his blood to forgive our sins. He has given us access to the spirit who would be in our hearts, who would write the law on our hearts and change us. He is the one who's able to transform, forgive, and save. And he remembers our sin no longer. See, Jesus is the obedient son, the obedient Israel that was supposed to come up out of Egypt, but that couldn't. He's done all that was asked of him. He's loved the, way, the father the way that we are supposed to. And the best part is that he welcomes us into this new covenant where we're able to receive his righteousness, his standing before God as our own. God's plan for salvation, his work of protecting, guiding, and warning is written throughout the Bible and it's fulfilled in the person of Jesus. We can trust in God. If you're here today, what you should be hearing right now is, I don't have to do this myself. I, I don't have to earn God's forgiveness. I don't have to earn his favor. I don't have to earn salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. God has done the work of saving us from our sins, and he will continue to work in our lives, to warn, guide, and direct us, and to protect us until we receive the eternal inheritance that is promised us. But the promised land that we're waiting for is, is heaven. It's not here, it's not right now. God is saving us for a better purpose. The question naturally is though, how are we like the Israelites? Stubborn, hard-hearted, unwilling to trust and obey, wanting to stay in slavery rather than follow God to the promised land. We'd rather worship other things, other gods, lesser things, then see the person of God and worship him fully. Where are we choosing to, to go back into slavery or to stay in slavery? If you're not a follower of, of Jesus here and you're, you're here today, what do you believe that Jesus is offering you? What is he offering to save you from? We would welcome you to, to talk to somebody around you, to one of the staff members. We would love to share the gospel, share the good news of what God wants to do in your life. And if you're a Christian here today, you're a follower of Jesus, in what ways do you need to reject going back into slavery, living in slavery, and instead live the life of salvation that God has given you? This passage, this song that we're given, it's supposed to remind us to sing. It's supposed to remind us to worship. It's supposed to remind us to tell the story over and over again to ourselves. We should be a people who sing it, who believe it, and who worship God because of it. And so let's keep singing it to remind us to reject the desire to go back into slavery, to anticipate Jesus' return and anticipate the consummation of every promise that we see fulfilled in Jesus for eternity. So would you pray with me to that end? Father, God, when we, when we look at scripture and we see your hand working, when we see all that you have done, God, would our hearts be stirred to respond to the salvation that you have offered us? God, would we not be stubborn and hard-hearted? Would we not love sin? 
more than the gospel? Would, would he not want to turn back and go back into to slavery, but rather follow you into eternal life, into the promised land, which is heaven, being with you fully where every uh, tear is gone, where pain is gone, when sorrow is gone, when fighting is gone, and yet we get to perfectly experience the life with you that we were created for. So God, would you help us to see your work of warning and guiding and protecting us? Would you help us to see the work of Jesus for us? Would we trust in him alone today? We pray this in your great name, Jesus. Amen.